You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Been way, way, way too long. One of my favorite people. If you don't like the fact I have a podcast, here's one of those guys to blame for it because he's kind of responsible for some of this mess. Uh, Yale Losowski, our good friend from the Consumer Choice Center, my friend. It's been too long. How are you doing, Sir Andrew? Um, I am doing swimmingly. There's been a lot of uh, interesting stuff happening, but overall, I'm trying to endure the uh, cold winter that's mounting here in uh, continental Europe. And then uh, keeping abreast of all the issues impacting our lives and freedoms, man. There's a lot out there. Yeah, we were, we've been having a lot of cold rain. I keep telling people it's good German weather, and they don't really understand what I'm talking about. Because part of Germany, uh, when you're in the Rhineland Faults, you actually don't get a lot of snow. You just get cold rain all winter, and it's brutal. So I hear you, my friend. Um, this is an area where you know way more about it than I do. Uh, I always turn to you on things like crypto and things like this. But this FTX thing... I don't think this is actually a crypto story. I think this is an out-and-out fraud story, and I think it's backwards to treat it any other way than to start with, this is one of the most massive frauds we've ever seen in the recorded history of humankind. Am I wrong to take that angle on this? You're not, and um, Andrew, I wish the media were full of people like you, because that is the correct angle. Uh, This is a $32 billion company that essentially evaporated overnight. And had nothing to do with, you know, the price of X or Y coin or token or technology. It had everything to do with uh, rampantly, uh, allegedly, criminal behavior. And this is your classic Ponzi scheme. Uh, There's a lot of different uh, scenarios where money was going in between various entities. And anyone who was a customer at uh, the exchange of concern FTX uh, finds that they don't have their funds there anymore. So I think they're... We can we can kind of uh, paint the picture of the beginning of this. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? Because this uh, this goes back, way back into the summer. Yeah, it goes back away, and it's important to talk about how far back this goes because people hear something like, "Well, they're they're putting it in bankruptcy and it'll go to bankruptcy court." This is not going to be a bankruptcy. I've talked to multiple lawyers. I've talked to our friends that look. I've been through a bankruptcy personally. I know that process. There's no records. They cannot do a bankruptcy on this because there's no records. That's how bad this is. And that tells me 
look, I'm a simple guy. If you're not keeping records from the go, you're not really a company to start with because companies have to do things like compliance and reporting. There's no records. So as you take us back beyond this summer, even if you want to go all the back to the Alameda research and all that stuff, when you take us back, walk us back to that point and understand that there's no records of any of that. That's what tells me what I need to know about this situation right there. Exactly. Yeah, there's um, to go back to the very beginning, you got this kind of uh, woundakin, woundakin, this uh, the term that was used a lot, this kind of bushy haired fellow, Sam Bankman Freed. And he started this group, the Alamedia Research. So it began as a company uh, that operated, you know, throughout uh, Barbados and the Virgin Islands and, and the Bahamas. And this was set up as a as a trading firm, your normal hedge fund. You know, they would take risk. They take capital, make bets, do leverage. They do all of that. And the founding myth is that they were able to find a discrepancy in the price of the uh, Bitcoin token in various Asian markets and South Korea specifically. And because of whatever arbitrage, they were able to build up significant capital. It was so much capital that they thought that they had the opportunity to create their own crypto exchange, which later became FTX. They set it up in the Bahamas. Uh, Sam Bankman Freed is the CEO of FTX, moved there, uh, continued with FTX, grew it into a crypto exchange, while at the same time Alameda Research, which was also the hedge fund that he was CEO of, was doing trades and they were using various tokens. And essentially, the beginning of this really was very commingled. And from the very beginning, you had Alameda Research, which was sending money to FTX. FTX was sending money to Alameda. It was not very clear exactly which entity had which money. And these are all customer deposits. So you had various you know, individual consumers using this platform. You had uh, entire other hedge funds. You had people like Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. Uh, and then you had a lot of the uh, endorsement, endorsement celebrities who later came on who also were buying stock using this. And essentially what we had building up was this cryptocurrency exchange that existed around the world, but was only available to certain people because the U.S. entity, that is FTX, really did not have that many customers. So a lot of people actually register with the international version of FTX, so the one that's regulated in the Bahamas, where it's a bit more lax, there aren't as many requirements in terms of your address, your date, your financial information, your driver's license. So a lot of people were using this in order to buy and trade cryptocurrencies. And going back to July was really when Sam Bakeman Freed came out in the four. This is when we had um, a couple of Ponzi's that blew up in the summer. We had uh, Terra Luna. Uh, Terra USD was this stable coin that was being used by certain areas and they once the bitcoin price dipped essentially this whole thing went bust uh big old ponzi uh we had three ac same thing so you, you had a lot of bankruptcies and things that were forming in june july of this year and it was alameda and ftx both that came together and started gobbling up some of these institutions um, I'm thinking of BlockFi. I'm thinking of Voyager Digital. Uh, so these are various uh, crypto brokerage services or exchanges or yield offering services. All that you need to know is that this company then took on a lot of those debts 
And because the money was wishy-washy every which way, it was not really clear who was part of which organization, who was part of which firm. And by now we know that it was basically a conglomerate of about 150 different companies that were set up under these various umbrellas. Uh, There was capital that was moving back and forth. And what broke it all was a story in Coindesk in late September, early October, which showed that the majority of the capital at Alameda Research were actually these tokens that were the base token for FTX. They call it the FTT token. So once that set in, then came the FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. You had Binance, who held a lot of these tokens, realized what was happening, sold them off, created a bank run. And basically, at the end of the day, FTX completely out. Maybe they'll go to bankruptcy. Maybe, as you state, they, they don't really have the, the ability to do so. But what it ended up in is a lot of people who had their money at FTX, that money was actually going to Alameda. And a lot of it was being funneled through the political system, through donations to both sides, to both political parties. And now we have uh, this entire story. We have Sam Bakeman free giving interviews and a lot of confusion about what this means for cryptocurrencies, for regulation and the future of this industry. Yeah. And again, we'll get to the crypto in a minute, but that's like the second or third level story to this. Another part of this, you mentioned the media and how the media has or hasn't covered this. Here we go again. We have a template in the American media now of the wonder kid, you called it, the savior tech person. How many times are we going to see this movie? Before we start being a little skeptical of these people, because, you know, the Sam Bankman Freed guy has obviously gotten the Elizabeth Holmes treatment, for lack of a better way to put it. We've seen this multiple times now. These people are darlings. They don't get any skepticism until they do. You know, gradually, then suddenly the old quote goes, this is a big problem because, you know, got all credit to Coindesk for busting this thing wide open. Where's the New York Times? Where's the Washington Post? Where's any, you know, ProPublica, anybody? Where was anybody in actually investigating all this money flowing around all over? Look, this went into entertainment. It went into sports. It went into politics. These tentacles go deep. The savior complex narrative is crippling journalism when it comes to the tech area. Is that fair? I think it's probably correct. I mean, obviously, we're everyone wants to be on the side of tech innovation. Um, But what we've seen in many of these cases, and I I think a very good litmus test is uh, anybody who shows up with Bill Clinton at an event and sits to his left is is probably someone not to be trusted. (laughs) Is the same with Elizabeth Holmes, is the same with a lot of these tech guys. I mean, it was the same with uh, Solyndra back in the day during the Obama administration. Uh, You have political forces and you have media forces that end up rooting for various industries. And I'm all for that. If it's a good industry, if they're uh, treating their customers well, if they've got good business practices, they provide a great product. Uh, but there's always got to be skepticism the second that that touches public policy and it touches the laws and regulations that really govern our lives. And I think what you saw with the Sam Bank- Bankman Freed situation is that there was so much money that was being handed out at all levels. You mentioned entertainment, uh, you have the arena in Los Angeles, you have Um, all the money that was being donated to various political action committees. Uh, We know now that there was a lot of money that was going to the Republican groups as well. We only have the public information on the Democratic giving in the very beginning of this. Uh, But we know that there was a lot of money that was being handed out to various committees who were dealing with different types of crypto regulation. And the hope was that 
FTX would be able to get a license better than any other company. And they were trying to set up the rules so that they would be advantaged. So, you know, when it comes to the media, very much the same. Uh, there's this new outlet, Semaphore, uh, that is out there that is uh, staffed by many former New York Times journalists. Uh, they have to forever write in all of their articles that Sam Bankman Freed is an investor. And he put a lot of money in that. I believe it's up to, upwards of $100 million. And that is is sort of the issue with this story is that because he's given money in all these different places, because he becomes such a huge figure in terms of not just political giving, but advertisements, celebrity endorsements, you know, he became someone that was a bit untouchable or just had the perfect story for journalists. He had the perfect, here's a vegan entrepreneur who doesn't care about making money, who just wants to make the planet better for everyone while he's also taking those customer deposits and washing it through his own system. And, and who knows where all of that is ending up. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Yeah, Yael Osowski joining us. Look, you have consumer choice beside your name on everything you do. As much as we rail against government and regulation, justifiably so most of the time, this kind of out-and-out fraud, this really kills consumers, especially when it's something like an emerging technology, which the whole idea that, look, you pitched this to me personally, like, look, this is the entry-level thing. Everybody can get into it. This is going to be the next wave. We all understand crypto now isn't what crypto 10, 12, 15 years from now is going to be. But when you have out and out fraud like this and when it's in a new market like crypto and you have a very old story of a con man who fit perfectly into the media narrative and the public's perception, look, you get conned because you want to be conned. That's the way it goes. And people wanted to be conned here. Take the consumer choice angle of this. This really hurts consumers and hurts consumers confidence, especially on something that's an emerging market. Right. Yeah. And it, I, I think. um as Consumer Choice Center, we were one of the first groups um, who actually put something out into the public and informed Congress of, of what was happening. So we started writing about it in late August, early September, and we sent letters to both the House Finance Committee and the Senate Agricultural Committee beginning in mid-October. Um, by then, we had not yet seen the Coindesk article. I believe it came out just after that. But already, all of the different summer shenanigans of, of SBF, of FTX and Alameda Research, they were kind of on display. And our fear at the time was that, look, this guy has an in for the regulation and things are going to be written in a way that will benefit him and the company and are likely going to not only be bad for all future companies and competitors, but for all crypto consumers of the future, because something's going to happen, something's going to bust, it's going to cause prices to go down, it's going to, they're going to lose confidence in the system. Uh, I mean, cryptocurrency as an industry itself used to be 
uh, over three trillion dollars. Now it's down to about one trillion, and you know, thanks to this, it might descend even further. And I think again, it has to do with that uh, elementary fraud and criminal aspect. And and again, all these th- all of these things are illegal in the normal market for any other company, insider trading, uh, fraud, wire fraud, all the stuff. There are already things on the books. Hopefully, they'll pursue it. Uh, but you know our our uh, our good friend saying Megman Freed here, he's been uh, wined and dined and doing plenty of interviews, and uh, I don't know if we're necessarily doing the right thing uh, right now and just kind of letting this guy go off. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the justice system will work this time. Yeah, yeah, Lasowski joining us. I think this is going to the justice system pretty quickly because again, bankruptcy cannot touch this because there's not enough records to do it. I, I that's kind of where this feels like it's going, and we'll see what happens there. You already mentioned it. You sent letters to Congress because y'all are smart and you know what's coming next. Uh, the overreaction and the do something cries. Congress doesn't have a great track record of do something, especially when it's a high technology, new technology sphere, because frankly, they don't know what they're talking about most of the time. We've watched those hearings. It's frankly embarrassing. I assume people like you who are big proponents of Bitcoin, the idea, not the fraud that we saw here with the FTX exchange, but the monetary system itself. You got to be a little worried right now because, boy, this is about as wide a door to kind of crack down and regulate as you're going to get in a long time. What do you see coming down the pike and what do you think folks that are advocates for Bitcoin and things like this going forward should be looking to do right now to be proactive and get in front of it? Well, I'll give a counterintuitive answer that I myself as a, a Bitcoin user who uh, hold my, I hold my own keys and have my own wallet. Uh, I feel great because my funds were not tied up in this exchange. Uh, my funds were not tied up in any of the exchanges that you know went bust in the summer. And I think that's the kind of principal idea of cryptocurrencies. It's an alternative to the traditional banking system and you are supposed to own your digital assets. And I think unfortunately for a lot of people who put their money on these different brokerages, exchanges and the like, their stuff is tied forever and who knows if they'll get it. And there's plenty of other bankruptcies I'm getting all the emails all the time of these companies, BlockFi, Celsius Network, all the rest. So personally, I feel fine. As someone who pays attention to the political system and will be impacted uh, on this at some level, yeah, I'm worried about it. And you know, there there's a little bit of an infighting that's happening in D.C. There's a little bit of talk between the uh, CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, about who should get to regulate what? What should the rules be? There are various propositions going on in the House and the Senate. Uh, some of the loudest people are people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has never liked crypto uh, from day one. Uh, I have an article that should come out this week, Andrew, about uh, responding to her directly because she's had a lot of pieces on this. You know, if you're a progressive, if you care about uh, the people who are downtrodden, you know, you should actually be for cryptographic. Uh, currencies for things like bitcoins. So I, I think she errs in many ways. Uh, I think the biggest impact will be with: Are we going to allow innovation to occur? Will we allow Americans to be able to take their funds and take them to an exchange or brokerage and get into cryptocurrencies in the first place? That's more what I worry about: are the on ramps. If we regulate the on ramps in a way that nobody can do it unless you give you know the the blood of your second child and every picture you've ever held and your social security number. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to grow. I see this as an alternative. So that's really what we need to protect. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I love Saucy joining us. We just talked to our friend uh, Danielle Zantillary about this. In traditional things like real estate investment, where the you know the SEC has regulations of you have to have so much financial income, or you are not quote unquote considered financially literate enough to invest, and that's it. It becomes a gatekeeping mechanism, which isn't fair. Let's let's zoom out for just a second while I got you because you are based in Europe. You just spent some time in Brussels. This is one of those things where the EU and DC are probably going to regulate a little differently. We're also hearing things now about the EU and Twitter. You're over there. It, it this technology stuff is global now. Talk about that balance between what the EU does in Europe and what DC is doing and how that back and forth is really kind of pushing where technology is going because these big companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, Meta, whatever we're calling it now, Twitter now is under their crosshairs. And now all this crypto stuff's going to be next. They've got to navigate both of those, and that's going to shape the future of a lot of this, isn't it? Yeah, and I would say if I were to sum up the European approach, it's regulate first, innovate later. Uh, so this is not uh, – <laughs> if you're trying to do anything innovative, the EU is is hardly the first place you want to start. It's it's not your founding location. We'll just say that. Uh, but you know the different approaches, you have the European Union, uh, both the Commission and the Parliament have put together like a markets and crypto assets a piece of legislation. Um, I've actually been trying to chase down the author of this. Um, his name is uh, Stefan Berger. He's a German fellow. He's an, a member of the European Parliament. So he's the architect of this. And uh, he's made a lot of uh, big claims that you know the European legislation would not have allowed an FTX, which I find very laughable and bogus. And unfortunately, we have like a growing sort of I don't want to say Luddite contingent amongst lawmakers, but I, I will say a lot of them who are way more skeptical of, of technology. And there are bad actors. There are bad actors in absolutely everything. But the answer is just to have good, smart policy that allows people to innovate. And what the EU is doing is they just want to clamp down. And that's kind of the only answer that the EU has. They don't talk about how we can have better tech investments or a better environment. How can we have a Silicon Valley you know, in Berlin or uh, Paris or anything like that. It's just about how do we penalize the American companies? So unfortunately, there's a bit of a nationalistic fervor against American tech companies in Europe. And I, I think that's leading to a lot of bad policy. And we see that a little bit coming out of Washington, D.C. as well. There's a, you know, we're in a, a grand uh, ideological battle with China and we're cutting down our tech leaders. We're cutting down on uh, many of the companies who are providing innovation. And it's giving a leg up to a lot of Chinese in innovators. You know, did anyone see tech talk coming? No, because we're too busy on trying to clamp down on Instagram reels and the rest. Uh, again, we have it within our power to root out the bad actors. We have the, the laws are already on the books. You know, someone's committing crimes like it was happening at FTX. Uh, but I do think at, at some point we have to we have to look at our political system and say, look, do we want to promote technology and innovation or do we want them to make all the decisions for us? Yeah. Yeah. Lelosowski, you talked about the Luddite contingent. Uh, the Republican Party has taken the House. They're already saying, especially their very populist right wing is demanding the heads of the tech companies. Do you see that to be a problem going forward here for the next two years, especially investigatory wise? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously that's going to be a big waste of time uh, because where the <laughs> essentially you want the, the right wing wants to regulate less of the content. But that the problem is, is that the progressive lawmakers in the Democratic Party, they want to regulate more. So I'm actually. I'm feeling good about uh, the prospects for technological innovation because I don't think there's going to be an agreement between left and right. It would have to be so narrow that it would not change much. And 
you know, it's already been pretty bad. There's there's no political advertising allowed on Facebook. There hasn't been any political advertising allowed on Twitter for a long time. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to questions of content regulation, and I know you've had people on your program talking about Section 230, I, I s- sincerely think they're not going to have the power um, nor the muster to be able to turn that over because I think there's we have good standing principles. Uh, it's going to be a large waste of time. There's going to be a lot of angry stuff. It's not all about Hunter Biden and the laptop and how that was censored. Uh, you know, there are bad actors there that we can that we can name and shame. Uh, but I'm I'm more hopeful and only because I know the mechanics of how government works, what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. And uh, I'm I'm feeling better about this one than I, I was, say, a couple months ago. Yep. Gridlock wins. And amazingly, 230 is probably one of the best accidental laws in history. If you actually go back to how that was written and why it was written and what it's actually accomplished, it's pretty remarkable. Yal Elisovsky, very good friend of ours. We will start having you on more and more going forward, my friend. Been way too long, but we've both been busy, busy men. Let folks know where they can keep track of you until we get you back on Hertel again. All the great work of the Consumer Choice Center. Yeah, we're pretty simple. ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. And you can find me at uh, Yael OSS over there on the tweeters. I'm pretty busy there. Hey, I've got masks on. I've got all this other stuff, but you can find me there on Twitter for now. Yep. Does all kinds of great work. Appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much for the time and explaining to this so well that even I can understand it as usual, buddy. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You heard tell here. Thank you, sir. (laughs) 